We're in uh, week eight of the Gospel of John. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to study your word and thank you so much for your kindness and grace to us every day of our lives. Help us, Father, <clears throat> as we seek to please you in every area that we might do things that will draw attention to our Savior and glorify him. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, the Gospel of John. This is week eight, as I said. And we're looking at the public ministry, which is chapters one through 12. And uh, we are dealing now with the feeding of the 5,000. So um, we're here in chapter six. Uh, Jesus is now in Galilee again. And uh, remember in the Gospel of John, we said that uh, we see Jesus moving back and forth from Jerusalem, Judea, uh, into, and, and Samaria, and, and into back to Galilee, whereas the synoptics seem to concentrate most of all of their uh, life of Jesus. It's in, the, in Galilee. Most everything in there is, except for this final a week of Passion Week. <clears throat> but we're in the Galilee now, and uh, we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And I say here, the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. This may do, be due to the fact that this is the only chapter in John that treats the Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry on which the synoptic writers spend most of their time. So... Uh, we're looking now at the miracle of the bread, chapter 6, 1 through 14, the setting of the miracle. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far, far shore of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. So sometime after this is a vague temporal reference that we are not told how Jesus got from Jerusalem, where he was in chapter 5, to now be in Galilee. So if you remember chapter 5, Jesus healed that blind man at the pool of Bethesda, just north of the Temple Mount. We were there. And then all of a sudden here in chapter 6, we're in Galilee. But, you know, John does not discuss how that took place uh, or anything. He just says uh, he's in Galilee. He's around the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, so uh, here it is. Um, Jesus crossed the far shore of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. I think I'm supposed to uh, maybe put that one up there. Um, I say here, um, sometimes the Sea of Galilee, actually a lake, was called the Sea of Tiberias because of the city by that name, which was located on its western shore. The city had been founded by Herod Antipas in around AD 20, in honor of Emperor Tiberius Caesar. So I don't have my arrow big tonight here, but you, if you can see down here, uh, Tiberius, this city on the Sea of Galilee, and it's still there today. At least there's a modern city there. Uh, uh, I know because we ate at McDonald's there. <laughs> and eating at McDonald's is, a, is always an experience in Israel because 
they always have two separate eating areas. They have one for the meat and one for the dairy portion because Orthodox Jews have to have separate, you can't mix, you can't mix meat and dairy in, Jude, in Orthodox Judaism. So they have separate uh, floors actually for if you want to, if you want a milkshake, you got to go to one floor. If you want a hamburger, you got to go to another floor. And you can't get a hamburger with a cheeseburger, unfortunately, because that would be mixing kind of thing. So anyway, um, there's Tiberius, and as, as uh, I said in the notes here, this was a city that was founded, uh, you know, relatively recent times, at least in relation to Jesus, eighty twenty. 20. Um, remember, the first really emperor of Rome, we think of as emperor, was a man by the name of Augustus. Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus. Then after him, his uh, sort of stepson, Tiberius, was the emperor. And Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod. And so uh, Herod, you know, Herod the Great was, uh, got his kingdom because of Augustus. He was beholden to the Romans, and then his son was too. So they, they would build things in, in Jerusalem and in the areas to honor the emperor because they wanted the, good, the goodwill of Rome and so forth. So he founded this city here, the Sea, the sea of Tiberias, um, and probably not so much at this time, but by the time John is writing, uh, it, it becomes sort of the Sea of Tiberias. It becomes more common to call it the Sea of Tiberias rather than the Sea of Galilee, which we call it. It's a sea. We call it a sea, but really we think of it more as a lake. It's really a, more of a lake and not what we think of as a sea, because we think of the Mediterranean Sea as a huge kind of feeding into the ocean. This doesn't feed into the ocean, it's just fed by the Jordan River. But anyway, that's, uh, that's a nomenclature. <clears throat> so the far shore, it says that Jesus crossed to the far shore. And that is, uh, the, the far shore was determined from the western Jewish side. So on the west side over here, where Tiberius, Magdala, uh, Capernaum is, this is the heavily Jewish area over here. And it says Jesus crossed from the far shore. Now we assume, uh, remember he had, uh, he had moved his family or something, or at least they seem to be located in Capernaum. Seems to be the major location now. We noticed earlier from Nazareth, Jesus seems to move from Nazareth to Capernaum. So we're, I'm just guessing here, we're guessing that he came maybe from Capernaum. But he comes from the west side, and he goes over to the east side, which is, tends to be more of a Gentile area over here. Not exclusively, but that's, uh, that's the, what we find. So he goes over to the eastern side, as indicated by the era. Uh, number two here, verse two, And a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. So um, here we are um, looking at the timeline of uh, Jesus' ministry. Uh, and it says the Jewish Passover festival was near. So we are... Where the era indicates, we're at the third Passover probably mentioned in the Gospel of John, though the second one was not called a Passover in John 5. It's called a festival. If they're all Passovers, then this is the third one, and we're one year away. Uh, 
uh, one year away. This is 8029. And so if, if, if we've got our chronology right, we're one year away from Jesus' crucifixion. One year away. So a great crowd of people, I say, followed him because, not because they wanted to obey him, but like those in 2.23.25, they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. This was the height of our Lord's popularity in Galilee. So in Galilee, he's very popular. Great crowds of people are following him, as we'll see here with the feeding of the 5,000, and that's 5,000 men. So we've got about a year to the crucifixion. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? According to Mark 6, Jesus had taught the crowd at some length, and that is why he felt concerned about feeding them. Philip was the obvious person to ask about feeding some since he was from the nearby town of Bethsaida. Now, from the, uh, the, uh, from the um, um, Gospels, we know that this feeding of the 5,000 miracle took place somewhere near this town of Bethsaida. Philip is from there. We saw that earlier in the gospel. So he's asking Philip, where are we going to get some food? Verse 6, he asked this only There's one of them here with, with Philip. Uh, I say this note is added by the evangelist so that we're not reading the gospel, reading the God think that Jesus was stumped and surprised by the miracle that was eventually performed. Verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? These are, uh, on the left, those are barley loaves, that dark, darker uh, grain uh, compared wheat there. Uh, these are these small cakes, as I say, meant to be eaten with fish, probably pickled fish, maybe, we don't know for sure. Uh, barley loaves were the inexpensive bread of the poorer classes. Well, the miracle, uh, the performance of the miracle, verses 10 through 15, Jesus said, how the people sat down, there's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down about 5,000 Men were there. So um, they're in the area of Bethsaida. We're looking at the uh, Sea of Galilee there, uh, Sea of Tiberias from the northwest. And uh, here's another view of the plain looking at it from the east. So even today, it's kind of a large plain that it could accommodate a lot of people uh, there in that particular area. We don't, we don't know the exact location where Bethsaida is actually today, but it's somewhere in this area. We're pretty sure somewhere there is this area. Uh, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I say, according to Mark 6.40, the people were arranged in groups of hundreds and fifties. The crowd numbered about 5,000 men. Now, the word there for men is the word for males. Women and children would 
be an addition to this figure. We don't know how many of that would be, 15,000 more, I don't know. It's a huge number. Christ proceeded to give thanks to the Father for the loaves and the fish given by the lad. Notice that Jesus gave thanks. He blesses God, not the food. I guess that's one of my little pet peeves there. You know, I mean, I don't know. Don't, don't get mad at me here, but uh, you know, we say, Lord, bless this food. What do we mean by that? Make this food happy? <laughs> you know, it's just a saying. We say it, and I, I'm, I'm sure I've said it, you know, times again, but, but it's maybe not the appropriate thing. We should probably say, thank you, Father. For the, we usually say, thank you for this food and so forth, but we're in the habit of picking up slogans, you know, and we say, bless this food, but I don't know exactly what that means. The word, uh, the problem is the word bless is a word that means give thanks uh, in Greek, and so it gets a little confusing, sometimes translated bless. Um, so we bless God, we thank God, we don't thank the food in that sense. So, uh, so we see here when the food was distributed, miraculously, the supply continued to be adequate until everybody is filled up here, and there's 12 baskets full. Now, sometimes we just don't know is there some significance of that 12 baskets? I don't know. I mean, we're not told. People have different ideas that it represents the 12 tribes of Israel or something like that, but it's just not clear to us exactly if that means anything or not. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. After viewing the miraculous, this miraculous event, the people began to conclude that when what Jesus had done was similar to Moses, who had supernaturally provided manna for Israel in the wilderness. They conclude that Jesus is the prophet wrote about in Deuteronomy 18, 15, this famous verse where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is clearly a, a messianic prediction by Moses, but not, he doesn't know the full extent of all that's coming. Verse 8, Jesus, knowing that, an ex that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So in that area, you can go from the lake right up into sort of the hills. I guess you'd call them mountains. Some of them are pretty high. Uh, so it's not that far away. The Sea of Galilee is way down deep. It's 600 feet below sea level. So it's, it's down in a crown of a crater. And... Uh, and then there's hills all around, so he could easily go away like that uh, to, a, to a mountain. I say now we see that those who viewed Jesus as the prophet understood that role to also be kingly. But they were interested in a king for their own selfish purposes. In verse 26, Jesus will say, Very truly I tell you that you're, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This is the kind of king they wanted and were willing to use force to get their wish. How far they would have taken this is difficult to know. So they wanted this king. He would set up this kingdom and feed them and kick out the Romans, as we said. I mean, would they have started a revolution to start uh, to, to, uh, to set him up as uh, a political messiah? Uh, and, uh, you know, as we know, Jesus was not proclaiming a kingdom that had a 
materialistic character. Now, the Messianic kingdom will be a literal kingdom in the future, but its basis will be a spiritual revolution. Those who enter it will have to be regenerated, born again. Uh, it won't be automatic just because of birth, just because someone is born in, into the Jewish you know, family or something like that. It required that you know, people's hearts will have to be changed to enter the future kingdom. So Jesus is not going to yield to this kind of political pressure at all, so he withdraws from the crowd. And Mark and his gospel tell us, tells us he went off to a hill to pray after this. Well, then we see the miraculous walking on the water, 16, 616 through 21. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum, which seems to be their you know, headquarters in Galilee. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. So um, here's a boat, a reconstruction of a boat. Uh, they actually found a boat in the Sea of Galilee right from this time, and this is a reconstruction of it. Actually, if you go to if you ever go to Israel and you go to Galilee, you'll go to a museum there and you'll see what's left of that boat, just some wood stuff. But they read, so this was the kind of boat that they would have been in, his disciples would have been in. And uh, so it says that uh, they set across the lake for Capernaum. So they're going, uh, you know, their, 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 their destiny is Capernaum, but this storm comes up on the lake very quickly here, and this wind was blowing and so forth. Um, I say when Jesus was praying up in the hills, his disciples went down the lake, got in the boat, and set off toward the west, toward Capernaum. By this time, they'd reached the middle of the lake, according to Mark 6, a strong wind came up. So they, they kind of got out and apparently got sort of blown out more toward the lake uh, rather than hugging along the shore there. Um, the, the, uh, uh, you know, apparently, uh, John, the, the writer of this is, is one of the disciples in the boat. Uh, he's writing after the fact when he says here, uh, you know, Jesus had not yet joined them. So he knows that, you know, he's writing after the fact he's in the boat and he knows that Jesus ultimately will join them as we'll see here. Verse 19. Um, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore they were, where they were heading. So though the, the disciples were terrified to see someone walking on the water, their fears were relieved when Jesus identified himself. It's not clear whether an additional miracle may be indicated in verse 21. It's hard to know exactly what this word immediately means. If you take it, you know, sort of literally as meaning instantaneously, you know, then there must have been some miracle here that suddenly they take him into the boat and they're right there in Capernaum. Um, the, the word doesn't always mean instantaneously. It can mean very quickly. Uh, you know, speedily, it could mean that. So I'm not sure whether we have a miracle. It could have. 
it may be that uh, they were able to, to row then and get there fairly quickly. Well, this brings us into the discourse on the bread, verses 22 through 40. Um, I already did that I went forward. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after Jesus had given thanks. So <clears throat> that's what I'm trying to show there. So apparently some boats came from Tiberias up to this area where the miracle had been performed. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got it into their boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So they, uh, you know, get into a boat and in those boats that came from Tiberias, and go over to Galilee. So the next day, the crowd was still on the east side of the lake. They took note of the fact that Jesus, the day before, was, was, there was only one boat there. And since they had not seen Jesus leave in the boat with his disciples, they assumed he was still in the area. When they couldn't find him or his disciples, they took boats to the west side of the lake to Capernaum. When the boats arrived at the location of the feeding of the, excuse me, why the boats arrived at the location of the feeding of the 5,000 is not clear. Possibly they were blown there by the storm. We just don't know. But some boats showed up there, came there, and they were convenient. So these people were able to go to Capernaum. Uh, once they located uh, Jesus, they, you know, they asked him, uh, you know, they asked him, uh, you know, uh, Rabbi, when did you get here? Uh, uh, the implication is, you know, how long have you been here? You know, how did you get here? You know, we, we were looking for you. Where you been? Uh, and Jesus takes this opportunity to give what we call this, this discourse on the bread of life. So he uses the symbol of bread, as we'll see. He's the bread. And he uses the symbol of eating the bread. He uses that as a symbolic fashion of believing in him. Now, of course, as we'll see, the Roman Catholic Church and some other denominations turned this into a, from a symbol into a literal eating Jesus. The mass is a time when you turn that literal bread into the actual, actual, <laughs> actual, did I say? Physical body of Jesus, believe it or not. So, you know, but it's clearly Jesus is speaking symbolic, as we'll see as we go through here. Um, now, according to verse 59, we're here at verse 22 through 25. When we get to 59, at the end of this, it says, this discourse took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, here's the synagogue at Capernaum. <clears throat> this synagogue is actually, this one right here, they, they suggest it's probably second century uh, they kind of date it right then. But it seems to be built on the foundations of another original synagogue. So if you go to, if you go to Israel, you'll go to this synagogue here um, of the buildings around it. When we were there, Pans and I were there, 
and 2000, none of these other buildings that I remember were excavated. They, they're always excavating new things. So here's what it looks like in the synagogue. On the left, you can see what looks kind of like steps here. These are actually benches where people would seat, sit down, right around there on this left and on the right and so forth in the synagogue. Some people would sit. This is uh, showing the uh, present synagogue on the foundation of that older synagogue. Now that top synagogue is limestone and this bottom synagogue is basalt. That's volcanic rock. And so that's what was used to apparently build, readily available to build the earlier synagogue. And that synagogue dates from uh, the time of Jesus. Now since when we were there, they've dug down further. So they dug down below the earth and that's the, found, that's the floor of the original synagogue. So this would have been the synagogue where Jesus was at. We assume it's a synagogue. There's only one found there and they just talk about a synagogue in Capernaum. So we assume this is the one, but uh, that would have been the original uh, building that, where Jesus uh, has this discourse on the bread of life. Um, verse uh, 26 through 29, the work of God. So uh, Jesus answered, Verily, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So here Jesus does not answer their question. You know, he, instead, he questions their motives in looking for him. Although they had seen the miracle the day before and had concluded he was the prophet and a potential king, nevertheless, they failed to see the spiritual significance of what the miracle pointed to. Jesus was the bread of life and in him is salvation. Um, so remember, just because people follow miracle workers does not mean they are saved. And even in our day, people follow miracle workers. They go to miracle crusades. And sometimes, you know, we understand they're, they're, they've got the death sentence. They have no other choice. And they go and they hope for some kind of miracle at some of these things. And these people are looking for, you know, they're not looking necessarily for healing, but food, you know. This guy can provide food. But miracles, you know, throughout the Bible are primarily, as you've heard, designed design and given to attest the messenger and his message. That's the purpose of miracles. That's why the apostles did miracles. That's the main purpose, so that they, they give testimony to the effect that this person is from God and so forth. But some people are only interested in miracles, not really the message of the person who's doing the miracle, like these people. Verse 27, Do not work for the food, Jesus says, that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has placed His seal of approval. So Jesus begins by rebuking them for their purely materialistic viewpoint. Do not work for the food that spoils. These folks are like the woman at the well who was eager to be supplied with an endless supply of natural water, a supply that would eliminate the need to make frequent trips to the well. In the same way, these people are looking for a miracle worker who will fill their stomachs with bread. And so Jesus challenges them to pour their energy into pursuing, he says, food that endures to eternal life. 
Now, as, we, as I say, as this discourse goes on, we'll learn that this food is Jesus himself. And to work for will be explained when Jesus says, work for the food that endures. That phrase, to work for, will be explained as believing. He'll set this forth in a moment uh, that he's the food. And when I talk about working, you work for food. If you're going to have food, you're going to work for food. And compare that to Jesus. He's the food. He's the eternal life. And you have to believe in him for that. And so the Father has placed his seal on Jesus as the authorized agent. He is the only one who can bestow this food that endures to eternal life. Verse 28, then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, you say you've got to work for this food. Uh, what do we got to do? This, what do we got to do to do the works? So I say the crowd misunderstands Jesus' prohibition in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils. They're focusing on the nature of the work, the work God requires, rather than what is the appropriate goal of the work, food that endures to eternal life. They are thinking of performing some meritorious deed or deeds. So Jesus' point is not that they should uh, try to form, uh, perform some uh, novel, some new form of work, but that merely material notions of uh, blessing are not worth pursuing. Uh, you know, if you're going to go after something, go after something that's not purely material blessings. Go out for something that has eternal significance, eternal life. But the crowd has failed to understand what Jesus says back there in verse 27 that eternal life is first and foremost a gift given by the Son of Man. This, it's the eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, he says there. They're not getting it, obviously. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, okay, <laughs> to believe in the one he has sent. So we're not talking about you know, work salvation, meritorious work. When I talk about work for this food, I'm talking about believing in the one he has sent. That's the work. Jesus sets them straight. The work that is, what God requires is faith. Faith, faith with the proper Christological object is what God requires, not works in any modern sense of the term. The Christian faith is not a work in the sense that implies effort that achieves some earned result. You can get confused about that because we do have to believe. And you say, well, isn't that doing something? Isn't that working? Not in the biblical sense, you know, of doing something to earn uh, something. Uh, faith is simply our response to something God is doing to us. It's not something we create in ourselves in order to obtain something from God. Now, of course, many parts of Christianity believe that sort of thing that you have to work, you have to do something to please God in order to get His blessing. But that's not, what, that's not what faith is. Faith is just receiving, like an empty vessel, the truth of, from God. God works on our hearts and causes us to respond in faith by the instrument of faith. It's a response to God's gracious work in our hearts. That's what faith is. 
see the contrast of the Mosaic manna with the bread of God. So they ask him, what uh, sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? <laughs> what will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're quoting scripture to him, you know. The synagogue crowd amazingly demanded an attesting, validating sign beyond the feeding of the 5,000. Now you'd think you would, that would be enough, but remember Paul says Jews require miraculous signs. That miracle had prompted speculation that Jesus was the promised prophet like Moses. That in turn suggested to the crowd that they therefore had a right to expect more spectacular signs than Moses himself provided. And so since their forefathers ate manna in the desert, remember, it may be the crowd is demanding that Jesus prove his messianic status you know, by duplicating or surpassing that miracle of the manna. Do something even greater than what Moses did. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the manna from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the truth is that too much attention has been given to Moses in that it was not actually Moses who had provided the manna, but God. And God is now providing the true bread from heaven. In verse 33, that true bread from heaven is now called the bread of God. So now we find that not only is it Jesus, not only is Jesus the one who provides the true bread from heaven, as we saw in verse 27 following, but Jesus is the true bread from heaven. As we'll see in verse 35, I am the bread of life, he'll say. And so his, in addition, his provision is not just for the Jews, but it's for the world. And the world often in John, as we saw in John 4, the, the woman says, he's the, the people say he's the savior of the world. <clears throat> not just Jews, but everybody, all groups, all people. And so uh, Jesus says, he comes down from heaven and gives life not to just the Jews, but to the world, everybody. All kinds of people, all people, not just Jews. Identification of the bread of life, verses 34 through 40. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So the synagogue crowd responds like the woman of Samaria who said, Sir, give me this water, after Jesus offers her living water. They thought the true bread from heaven was something physical, failing to understand that Jesus was really offering himself to them. Therefore, explicitly, Jesus explicitly says in verse 37, I am the bread of life. Now again, as I said, of course, Jesus is the bread of life in symbolic nature, in a symbolic sense. He's the bread of life, but it's the person who comes to him you know, um, who does not hunger. It's the person who eats him. Uh, you know, when he, when he says that, you know, the person who comes to him, the person who eats him, it's the person who believes in him who doesn't thirst, you know. Um, so, you know, we, we read, read later, as I said in verse 53, Jesus will talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And this is where 
you know, the Roman Catholics and others, Lutherans, get their view of the, of the what they call the sacrament, uh, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. Um, but these are symbolic ideas, as we've been seeing, as we've been reading all the way through this. Um, note in verse 35 that coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are the same thing. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. They're not different concepts. We can talk about coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus. There's just different ways of expressing being born again, being regenerated. Verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. As he did in verse 36, Jesus repeats this charge of unbelief. Although there are many people who do not believe, Jesus' mission will not be a failure because the Father will bring certain people to genuine faith in Jesus. So Jesus is saying, whoever comes to him in salvation has first been given to him, that is, has been enabled to come by the Father. And he says, those who have been enabled to come will surely come, and those who do come will, as we say theologically, persevere. They won't fall away. They won't lose their salvation. I will never drive away. They'll come to me, and I'll have them forever. You know, in John 10, they'll talk about they're in my hand, and no one can take them out of my hand. That you'll use that kind of language when he gets to John 10. Uh, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So in verse 38, the word for gives the reason why Jesus will perfectly preserve all those whom the Father has given him. It is the will of the Father. And the entire purpose of the incarnation of his coming down from heaven was not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Remember, we said the Father plans or executes. The Son carries out carries that out. It's not that the Son has an opposite will or a different will, but you can express, the Son can express His will, the Father can express His will, though there's only one uniform will. The Father's will that the Son will lose none of all that the Father has given Him. And this preservation includes resurrection at the last day. So, I mean, there's no, there's no escaping here what we call eternal security, you know, in a verse like this. Because he says, everyone who looks at the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And then, then you, but if, if you don't lose it, <laughs> he didn't say anything about losing it or getting it. He said, you'll come to me, I'll give you eternal life, and I will raise you up at the last day. <clears throat> it's, just, it's just like Paul says, those who are called, uh, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. There's no, there's no break in that chain here with Jesus. Um, so 
So um, in verse 40 here, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I'll raise him to the last day. Those who are described uh, as verse 37 and 39 as given by the father to the son are now described as everyone who looks to the son and believes in him. So these who are given are also those who look to him, uh, those who believe in him and have, those who look to the son and believe in him and have eternal life. Um, so, you know, we have in these words here what theologians call, you know, the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man. God sovereignly gives, but we have to believe. There's a compatible nature to those. Theologians call it compatibilism. Not that I can explain it exactly. I don't understand how to explain it all, but uh, they're both stated in Scripture that we're given by the Father. He enables us. But we still believe, I actually believed, you know, in Jesus. Bill Combs believed, I believed. <laughs> I exercised my will and believed. But I was able to do that because of the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit in my life. Um, so, uh, verse uh, number four, the murmuring against the bread, verses 41 through 71. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So just as the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem objected to Jesus calling God his father, back in 518, remember, these ones in Galilee object to Jesus' statement that he is the bread that came down from heaven. They, of course, think of him as nothing more than an ordinary man, for they thought they knew all about his family connections from Galilee there, Nazareth, and so forth. Of course, you know, we, the readers of the gospel, we know about the prologue. And the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh, remember. So we know that he existed long before uh, long before his birth, his conception. Verse 43, Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus says. Jesus answered, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up the last day. So grumbling about divine truth is the common experience of unbelievers. It's only by divine grace that we hear the words of Christ and respond positively. And we cannot respond positively unless we are drawn by the Father. It's what theologians call the efficacious call. So those whom the Father draws, every one of them will be raised up at the last day. Again, remember I talked about Romans 8, 12. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Very similar to, theologically to what we have here in this particular verse. Verse 45, It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and have learned from Him comes to Me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. 
this call, this efficacious call, though it compels belief, is not coercive. It can be better be seen as a wooing or a drawing, but also a, a kind of teaching was attested in the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, 13. They will all be taught by God, Jesus says, quoting here. This speaks of an internal illumination implanted within the individual. The true believer, therefore, is one who hears the word of God and the word is applied to their heart by the Holy Spirit. So in this way, God acts upon people's hearts, like our hearts, and creates a spiritual attraction toward Christ that draws people to Him. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 30, 30, 47 repeats the thought of 315. That is, the one who believes has eternal life. In spite of this strong teaching of predestination in the preceding verses, Jesus concludes with an implicit invitation to believe. But it must be on His terms. He must be accepted as the bread of life, as He says here, as who He really says. Verse 49, Your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Jesus has already drawn a contrast between Himself and the Old Testament manna. Now He makes a further point. The manna could only sustain natural life. It could not bestow eternal life. They died. But if anyone eats the bread from heaven, he will gain eternal life. So notice again here and in the following verses, eating the bread of life means to appropriate Jesus by faith. That's what we're talking about. It's obvious from the context if you just read the context we've been working through. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This verse basically repeats what Jesus has just said in the previous two verses. The words, this bread is my flesh, have caused some to think that Jesus has reference to the Lord's Supper, obviously, here. But that's, you know, unlikely for various reasons. He says, this is my flesh. He doesn't say, this is my body. Remember, uh, that's what Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 says, this bread, this is my body. He doesn't say, this is my flesh. He's not using that metaphor here. I mean, this is not the Lord's Supper. Jesus is not instituting the Lord's Supper. That's instituted at the end of his life. You know, we'll see that in John 13, 14, <laughs> when he institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And taking of these elements of the Lord's Supper are not a means to salvation. We'll be hearing a lot about that this Sunday, you know, with Ordinate Sunday. Whereas eating his flesh, that is, which is what does that mean? Believing in him, that is a means to salvation. Verse 52. Thus the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I say it's hard to believe they could be so stupid to think Jesus is advocating cannibalism. Perhaps they understood the language as figurative, but argued about what symbolic meaning could be attached to eating Jesus' flesh. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. In response to their confusion, Jesus basically repeats the truth of the last part of verse 51, but He adds that one must also drink His blood. This, of course, could be offensive since the law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood. Again, 
There is no reference here to the Lord's Supper. The images of eating and drinking are only metaphors for receiving Jesus. Compare verse 40 with 54. Verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, compares to everyone who eats my flesh, and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. That's what we've been reading about constantly here. Um, it could be here that we are to understand some reference to the death of Christ with the idea of, you know, the, the flesh, His sacrifice for us, the blood, the atoning value. It's hard to say that might be something that's going on here. Verse 55, My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Other food like manna has value, but comparatively speaking, what Jesus offers is real food. It makes possible our abiding, and don't get, I've got to explain that word. That means our union with Christ. We remain in Him. So we'll see that in John 15, abiding. But abiding just means we are with Jesus. We are in union with Christ. We are in the body of Christ. We're saved. To abide in Christ is not an extra step, as we'll see after we're saved. Abiding in Christ is what we're all doing. We're all abiding in Christ. Every one of us who is saved is abiding in Christ. It just means we are in union with Christ. We are saved. Verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate uh, manna and died, but whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus here repeats the argument of 521, 525 through 7. Jesus lives because the Father has determined that he should have life in himself. Talk about that in 526. Thus those who feed on Jesus will also live. We have no spiritual life independent of Jesus, as we know. Now we come to the murmuring of the disciples, 60 through 71. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Where the disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? So just as the Jews had difficulty with Jesus' words, The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. So also many of the disciples. Now the word disciple means a learner. It doesn't always denote a true believer in the Bible. At the most basic level, it simply mean, refers to those who are either literally following Jesus from place to place or simply regard him as an authoritative teacher we'll see a distinction between these, quote, disciples, followers of Jesus, um, and the 12, when we get to verse 66 and verse 67. Um, um, so many of these people were temporary disciples. They were disciples, they were followers of Jesus because he was a miracle worker, he provided bread, he did these miracles but they eventually lost interest and they followed him no more. As I said, we've got to distinguish these as we'll see from the 12. Such uh, disciples are not necessarily genuine Christians. True disciples can be distinguished by their perseverance. 
John 8, 31, Jesus will say, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So there's disciples and there's disciples in the Gospel of John. You know, anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple in a sense. But Jesus says that real genuine born-again disciples are those who um, hold to my teaching. That's how you really can tell. And that's how we all can tell. <laughs> you know, that's how we know about people because when you're in church long enough, you'll have people who come and they may join the church. And we don't really know about anybody's individual salvation ultimately. We just don't know. But if you've lived long enough, you've known people who have made professions of faith. I've known many of them and they've just gone and left. And they never come back. Now, hopefully, we pray that they may, maybe they really were saved and we hope that God will get a hold of them and they will, but sometimes it seems like they never do. They just were temporary kind of disciples and that kind of thing, and that, that happens. We only know, we can only really tell genuineness is by their perseverance, how they continue the fruit in their lives and so forth. That's how we can ultimately judge. That's why we talk about professions of faith. And we accept people into our church based on profession of faith. That's all we can do. We can't look in their hearts. <laughs> we can't know. We accept their profession and we, you know, we, we try to teach people and so forth and hope that they'll progress and become really Jesus' disciples, you know, true, genuine disciples. Um, so these won't remain long. They just find his teaching intolerable. Verse 62 then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? In verse 38, Jesus has spoken of His coming down from heaven. Now He asks these disciples what their reaction will be if they see Him ascend to where He was before. The idea that these disciples see Jesus' ascension, they will be more offended than the idea of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood. Now why would that be? Why would, why would they be offended at seeing his ascension? I don't know for sure, but many people think here that because in the gospel, as we'll read, this ascension is frequently associated with his being lifted up on the cross prior to his resurrection as an ascension. And so if these disciples grumbled about their Messiah, uh, they've grumbled about these hard sayings of this Messiah that they wanted to make king. If they didn't like these kind of hard sayings about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, what would they think about his ignominious death? What would they think about, well, the Messiah can't be on the cross. He can't be crucified. By, you know, what, what, kind of, what kind of Messiah is this? You know, this, is, this will cause many to turn away. Uh, he can't be the one. And this is, of course, one I mean, it's, it's a given reason why Jews don't accept Jesus as the Messiah because they don't understand it. They, they won't accept Isaiah 53 as Messianic, which, you know, it clearly is. Um, so, uh, you know, how could one claim to have come from God and end his life this way? This wouldn't be the way a representative from God would come or the Messiah. Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Some of Jesus' disciples were 
taking the words of the Bread of Life discourse literally without really understanding their symbolic meaning. This is of no value and causes offense. It does not get at Jesus' meaning, for the flesh counts for nothing. Although the flesh cannot give life, the Spirit can, as we saw in John chapter 3. And if one understands the true significance of Jesus' words, they give life. If you really understand what He's saying here, <laughs> they give life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Jesus knew all along who would not truly believe in him. He was not surprised by unbelief, and neither should we. This is why that he had explained in verse 37 and verse 44 the need for the divine initiative, which draws those whom the Father has given to the Son and enables them to believe. The words who you know, betray him anticipate, obviously, the reference to Judas that we'll see in verse 70 and 71. So, you know, Jesus is not surprised by unbelief, and as I was trying to explain earlier, neither should we. It can be discouraging, very discouraging, when somebody makes a profession and they seem to be genuine and then they leave. That can be very discouraging, but don't be discouraged by that because we don't, you know, we don't know who's really been enabled to come in, and has genuine faith. That shouldn't, shouldn't. It, it's discouraging in the sense we hate it, but it shouldn't be surprising. I guess I should say it shouldn't be. We're going to, we're going to. Unfortunately, we'll see that kind of thing. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus' additional remarks did nothing to remove the offense that they had found in his words. Jesus was not the Messiah they expected. These disciples here failed, you know, as I said, the test of perseverance. You know, they're examples of the truth Jesus taught in the parable of the soils. You remember that parable? That's very helpful to understanding what happens in our lives and in churches and ministries. Remember, he tells that parable about some of the seed fell on the path, the birds came and ate it up. And later he explains what that means. Well, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that was what was sown in their heart. This is a seed sown along the path. So some people hear it, and there's not much response at all. Some fell on rocky ground, rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word Jesus says and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. With trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So these are people who make professions of faith. They seem immediately to be genuine, but they don't really persevere as we see. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. This seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Still other seed fell in good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He says, but the seed falling on good ground refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop. So the fruit, the evidence, that's, that's what we find. So don't be surprised that we see 
this kind of thing happening. Verse uh, 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Now that many of these casual followers have fallen away, Jesus puts the test to the twelve. You do not want to leave too, do you? The question is asked more for their sake. They need to articulate a response. He doesn't obviously need to hear that response, but they need to articulate it. They're human. Uh, it may be that, that only just the 12 remained. You know, maybe all these people were not, you know, they were just following for the bread and the, and the fish. I don't know, uh, for the miracles. Uh, you notice John speaks of the 12 for the first time. He doesn't explain it. Who are these 12? So it sounds like, John has read the synoptics. He expects us to have read the synoptics, which talk about the 12 a lot, name the 12 and all that kind of stuff. So that's another indication that this is probably written later and his readers would have read that. Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. <clears throat> so Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? That is, what is the alternative since Jesus has the words of eternal life? Peter may not have understood all that much of the preceding discourse. But here he picks up <clears throat> on verse 63, the words Jesus has spoken are spirit and they are life. In contrast to most of the disciples, the 12, except for Judas, are genuine. They believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a, a title that may come like from Isaiah 6. It appears to be a messianic title. The, in the book of Acts, it's spoken quite often as a messianic title. Verse 70, then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Though the twelve, excepting Judas, will not fall away like many other disciples, nevertheless, it's not because of any inherent superiority, but because they were chosen by Jesus. The Greek construction, one of you is a devil, has the idea that one of them has the character of the devil. This would be similar to Peter's, uh, Peter's being called Satan. You know, he says, get behind me, Satan. This is like, you know, one of you is like, one of you is the devil, like the devil. Later we know that Satan uses Judas, you know, enters into Judas, uses Jesus. The evening, you know, in John, in John 13, we'll read about when the meal was served, uh, it said the devil had already prompted Simon Issachariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. The devil uses human beings to carry out his evil deeds. And Jesus obviously can discern the source here. I say the meaning of Iscariot is not certain, but probably means man of Kerioth, with Kerioth referring to the name of a village in Judea. So Simon, probably from that particular place. I mean, Judas from that particular case. All right, we've gone over here, but we finished the notes for the first time in history. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lord willing. We'll see you next week, and then I guess the week after is Thanksgiving. We, will, we won't be meeting that week, but hopefully next week. Thank you.